BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. You know, in Washington, it's almost as big a day as opening day of Major League Baseball. And I'm talking about opening day of the United States Supreme Court. That historic event happened on October 4, the first session of the new term of the nation's highest court, which promises to be a real blockbuster. During this term, the court will tackle some of the nation's most controversial issues, including gun control, religious liberty, the death penalty, and abortion, which leaves us all pondering, among other questions, what are those big cases? What can we expect from the court? And when? And what changes will we see in the court with its three new Trump-appointed justices? Today, for insights and answers, we turn to one of the court's top reporters. Pete Williams has been covering the Justice Department and the Supreme Court for NBC News since March 1993. And he joins us today on the Bill Press Pod. Pete Williams, good to connect with you, and thanks for joining us on the Bill Press Pod. My pleasure. So, a big day last week, the Supreme Court in session for the first time in person in about 19 months. Uh, What was the mood like starting off a new term? Well, it's always somewhat expectant at the beginning of a new term, and I think everybody was pleased to be back in the courtroom with the Uh exception of Brett Kavanaugh, who tested positive for COVID the week before. He doesn't have any symptoms, but he had to stay home and participate by uh, telephone. I, my guess is he'll be back when the court resumes uh, hearing oral argument this week. Uh, but uh, th- it was a very strange scene in the courtroom because the court building is still closed to the public. Right. So there were no lines outside the building of people waiting to get in to see. The lawyers, uh, the podium or the lectern from which they speak was moved back away from the bench a little bit so that they were a little further away. Uh, The reporters who were in the courtroom were scattered throughout the public section instead of being in those benches at the side close in. So it's sort of like (laughs) arguing inside an empty train station in a way. But the other interesting thing was, after years of never saying anything in oral argument, every case, all five cases that were argued last week, the first questioner was Clarence Thomas. Wow. So COVID had an impact on Clarence Thomas, I guess. Well, apparently so, because during the COVID period, uh, all the oral arguments were conducted by telephone conference call and the justices asked questions strictly Mm -hmm. in seniority. The chief justice, John Roberts, would go first. And when he was done after his three minutes, he would say, Justice Thomas. And then Clarence Thomas would ask questions. And they were always very interesting and incisive. And he apparently uh, is energized by this. Well, the new Clarence Thomas. There we go. One thing that they settled before uh, actually starting the new session, I guess, um, was uh, a decision on D.C. statehood. Um, This sort of kind of killed any chances for residents of D.C. like you and me, Pete, uh, 
to to have our vote count, didn't it? Yeah, no big surprise here. The court just declined to take the case. It was one of thousands that piled up over the summer. The Supreme Court goes through what's called the summer list and issues an initial uh, order list on the first Monday uh, when they're back in session. And it was one of the cases they weren't going to take, but I don't think hopes were high or expectations, hopes were high, but expectations were not high. Right. Uh, And one, one other case, one of the cases they took last week, I found uh, pretty unusual. And that is that this was a case regarding September 11 and a, uh, uh, an inmate uh, down at Guantanamo Bay uh, considered the mastermind of September 11, Abu Zubaydah, having his day in court. What was the issue, and uh, how, how? What did the court? Uh, you know, how did the court handle it? Well, this was actually one of the argued cases last Wednesday. Right. Abu Zubaydah, the first person, he he was initially picked up by the CIA overseas. They suspected that he was a in the leadership of Al Qaeda. That turned out not to be correct. But he was the first person to undergo what uh, the Bush administration called enhanced interrogation and what his lawyers say was torture. He was repeatedly, many, many times waterboarded. He was slapped around, put in a small box, confined Mm -hmm. under very harsh conditions. How do we know that? uh, Well, we know that for several reasons. First of all, the uh, U.S. Senate issued a, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee issued a report on his uh, interrogation and his treatment that answered a lot of these questions. The two people who devised and helped to carry out the torture program, the two CIA contractors have uh, testified twice about it now, and Mm -hmm. one of them has actually written a book. So there's no mystery about what happened to him. What he wants to know is where and who was was involved in, in that where. Well, let me explain. Yeah. After he was detained, he was held in what the CIA called two black sites, places overseas. And Abu Zubaydah's lawyers say one of those places was Poland. And they want to know a little more about what Polish officials were involved, whether they knew what the nature of the treatment was going to be. And so they want to assist Polish investigators. And therefore, they want to question these two former CIA <laughs> contractors. The U.S. government won't allow that. They say the it, it seems to be, you could argue, one of the worst kept secrets that one of these was in Poland. The, the uh, European Court for Human Rights has so concluded, and a former Polish officials have said so publicly that it was Poland. But nonetheless, the CIA director, uh, uh, Mike Pompeo, issued a, a court declaration saying, look, we told these countries where we were going to have these black sites, that we would never reveal them. And so we're still not going to. And the fact that other people have said it doesn't make any difference. It would be a betrayal of trust for us to do that. And allowing uh, him to question these two, allowing Abu Zubaydah to question these two contractors, even if the contractors don't say the name of the country or call it country (laughs) green or country X, they're still assisting Polish investigators, and that implies that it was Poland. So therefore, we don't want them uh, questioned by Abu Zubaydah. So they have asserted the state secrets privilege, and that's the issue before the Supreme Court is whether the state secrets privilege can block this testimony. And from what I read, the justices seem to be pretty skeptical since this is, as you point out, no big secret, no big mystery, uh, why the government is holding the line here. Uh, And a couple of the justices suggested a pretty unusual solution. Correct. Yeah, th- three of them. Uh, t- two of the liberals, Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor, and one of the conservative, Neil Gorsuch, said, 
well, there's one other guy who was there when he was tortured. Why don't you ask him? That's Abu Zubaydah. <laughs> and the government lawyer who was arguing the case basically said, well, that's not my decision. And they said, well, get back to us on that. I find it striking that the leading, one of the leading terrorists, certainly if not the, on September 11, would have his day, in effect, in front of the United States Supreme Court, which says something about our justice system, I think. Yes, right? and of course, uh, you know, he's no longer considered to be somebody who had much of anything to do with 9-11, but he's sort of, uh, you know, in, in he's he's just in sort of this permanent detention, and I think that's one of the things the, the justices, especially Breyer, wanted to know is why is he still detained? Now, of course, these were just sort of the foreplay, if you will, for the big cases that we that are coming before the court. Uh, some major issues facing uh, for a long time that the country's been dealing with on gun control, on the death penalty, on a religious liberty, and on abortion. Uh, let's talk about each of those to the extent that we know what the cases are all about and what we might expect. Pete, let's start with the uh, the gun control issue, as I understand it, this is a case out of New York City, correct? Correct. New York State, actually. It's York not State. just the Sorry. city. Yeah. Um, in 2008, in a case from here in Washington, the Supreme Court, for the first time in American history, said that the Second Amendment does provide an individual right. The question was always, well, it talks about militias. Is it a militia right or an individual right? The court said it's an individual right to have a gun at home for self-defense. But since then, they consistently ducked the follow-on obvious question. Well, what about outside the House? The Second <laughs> Amendment says it's a right to keep and bear arms. So what about that and bear arms part? The case from New York raises that question. New York has a state law that says to carry there, you cannot carry openly a gun in New York State. You can get a permit to carry a gun with a concealed permit. You can carry a concealed weapon. To get that uh, permit, you have to show some special need for a gun, something beyond just a general uh, desire for self-defense. And the question is, does that violate the Second Amendment? Uh, it's a New York Rifle uh, uh, and Pistol Association, which is the NRA affiliate in New York. They're the one challenging the law. New York is defending the law. Um, and New York says, look, if you go back in history, there are lots of historical precedents for states uh, restricting concealed carry. And even in the 2008 decision, the case called Heller, the Supreme Court said that the Second Amendment right is not absolute, that there are lots of places where you could restrict carrying guns into churches mm -hmm. or schools and so forth. So uh, the, that, this is the, the follow-on question that the court has turned away dozens of times, and it's finally agreed to take up presumably because the conservatives in the past never knew where Anthony Kennedy would be. And I think now they feel that they probably have a majority on this question. Uh, and by the way, that earlier decision where the court said uh, that there are some, that the Second Amendment is not absolute, uh, that was written by Antonin Scalia, correct? Yes. And, and the, the theory is, I think the widely accepted theory is that uh, in order to get a majority, he had to include that other language in there to get the necessary votes. Right. But so nonetheless, the, you're right. It's his opinion. Yeah, uh, which is striking. That would be such a, the, the conservative justice with that opinion. Pete, hasn't this already been concealed carry question decided in other states? Yes, but there's a split among the circuits. Uh, the the circuits are divided over this. Some have said uh, under Heller's logic, there is no Second Amendment right to have a concealed carry that 
that states can put these uh, more more strict restrictions on. They can't ban it altogether, but these restrictions, especially in big cities, make sense. And other circuits, including some uh, both liberal and conservative judges, have said, no, uh, what does and bear arms mean if it doesn't mean carrying the gun outside the house? Uh, is there any, do we know when this case will be uh, argued before the court? Yes, November 3rd. Mm-hmm. So coming up pretty soon. Uh, and I guess a question I should have begun with is uh, how do the justices decide which cases they're going to hear anyway? I mean, how did this case end up on the court's docket this year? Sure. Well, it ended up on the court's docket because after uh, the, the law was challenged by this New York Rifle and Pistol Association and a couple of people in New York who wanted to get permits and couldn't. So they went to court, they sued it, they lost in the lower courts. And now they're appealing to the Supreme Court. And how does this what happens is uh, you have if you if you go to federal court, you have a right. You have an absolute right to appeal the decision if you lose before the trial court. Mm -hmm. The appeals court must hear your case. After that, you have no right of appeal, but you can ask the Supreme Court to take your case and the Supreme Court will decide whether or not to hear it. And it takes four votes of justices to grant a case to decide to hear it. Takes five to win, obviously, but only four to grant the case. Now, you know, I think you can you could safely say <laughs> that the four are not going to vote to grant unless they think they have a fifth vote to win. Right. So that's right. one of the reasons. And and generally speaking, the Supreme Court takes cases not to agree with the lower courts, but but because they think about two thirds of the cases they take, they reverse the lower courts. So so the fact that there's four justices who think they're going to win here and they must have a fifth vote. And the fact that the court presumably took this to, to, to uh, reverse the lower courts is why I think this is probably going to be some kind of pro-gun rights ruling. So uh, as I hear you, the justices then are presented with a list, a rather long list probably, of, pro of possible cases. Yeah, about 8,000 a year. Wow. Out of which they choose? About 65 to hear argument on. Hmm. Wow. Some they decide on what's called summary judgment, just on the papers, but the arguments uh, vary between sixty and seventy. Right. Uh, well, they certainly were not ducking um, controversial issues this year. Uh, uh, no, not at all. <laughs> in addition to gun control. Well, they did. They did temporarily duck one, and I'll just throw it in here. Very Go ahead, quickly. Cal. Uh, this is a challenge to affirmative action in college admissions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a group of Asian Americans backed by a conservative who's pushed this issue for years. Uh, they're challenging Harvard's admissions program. They say it that it discriminates against Asian Americans. And what happened last year is the Supreme Court solicited the views of the Solicitor General, meaning they want to know what the Biden administration thinks. And mm -hmm. so that that pushed it off. I can't imagine that the conservatives are sitting on the edge of their seats waiting to hear what the Biden administration thinks about affirmative action. I think that's just their way of saying, we've got enough on our plate. Let's hold this one off for later. Right. Well, certainly affirmative action is not a new issue. Neither is religious liberty. Neither are school vouchers uh, moving to the next big case that we're expecting. Um, uh, God, I think uh, I've been debating and we, talking about school vouchers ever since I started doing political commentary. This is a new case out of the state of Maine. What's the issue? Right. Maine has a, a strange uh, setup in, in this sense. Not every school, local school jurisdiction has a school. And if it doesn't, what it does is give money to the parents 
and then they can use that money to send their children to some other school, private school, mm-hmm. usually. Right. Now, in the past, the Supreme Court has said that when a state sets up any kind of program to benefit schools, it can't automatically leave out religious schools just because they're operated by religious institutions, because that would be discriminatory. This case takes it one step further. It's one thing to say the school is owned or operated by the Catholic Church or Methodists or whatever. What about in this case where the schools explicitly offer religious education? That's the question. That's why this is an interesting question, because it takes it one step further. Uh-huh. And the many states have, in fact, uh, uh, provisions in their state constitution that say public money cannot be used for religious purposes. So uh, this is a, the separation of church and state issue, and it's the it's. It's, it's coming closer and closer to public support of religious instruction. And, you know, again, you assume that the court took this case because it thinks the lower courts got it wrong. The lower court said that, uh, that Maine was perfectly fine to restrict this money so it couldn't be spent on religious education. But I think this, the Supreme Court has been extremely solicitous of religious rights and religious freedom in recent years. Right. And, and this gets to the fundamental question, I guess, much long debated since the, our, our founding of the wall of separation, so-called, to use Thomas Jefferson's phrase, between right. church and state. Well, but, it's, the, it's the very essential question here. And, uh, you know, uh, my guess is that the Supreme Court's prepared to remove one more brick from that wall. Right. Uh, and all these cases coming up in front of the Supreme Court, we haven't even gotten to the death penalty and the big abortion question yet. Our guest, Pete Williams, a longtime top reporter covering the Supreme Court and the Justice Department for NBC News. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and get more from Pete Williams on this new session of the United States Supreme Court. And today's podcast with uh, Pete Williams, NBC News, brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong. They're the backbone of the labor labor unions in this country, uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, In the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines, and in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the Laborers' Union, all supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back. Pete Williams, again, thank you so much for joining us. Another death penalty case coming up, uh, but an unusual one in front of the Supreme Court regarding uh, presence of a religious spiritual advisor uh, in the death penalty chamber. Yes, the, the, this is a, a case where an inmate uh, was uh, basically undergoing lethal injection, and he wanted to have his uh, uh, minister in the death chamber with him to lay hands on uh, during the time when the lethal chemicals were being injected and pray with him. And the state wouldn't allow that. And the question is, does that violate his religious freedom? And, and my guess is the Supreme Court's going to say yes. Uh, now, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the state simply has to change its policies here uh, and, and, and allow this. It's not really about the constitutionality of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. It's really about procedures to how the states carry it out. So I, I don't know how much lasting um, uh, importance this will make in terms of this country's long uh, journey along the path of of, uh, of the death penalty, but it is an interesting it is an interesting little blip. Well, I, that's what I wanted to ask you: whether this is sort of a backdoor into consideration of the death penalty it, itself, the constitutionality of the death penalty itself. Otherwise, it seems like um, almost not a momentous enough case to merit time for the Supreme Court. Do you agree? I, I think I think well, I don't disagree with that characterization. I think that. Again, it, it's evidence of how uh, how seriously this current court takes uh, claims of violations of religious freedom that they would consider it even in this context. But the court is fundamentally not going to say that the death penalty is uh, unconstitutional, although there are some justices who would say that. Uh, Stephen Breyer seems to seldom miss the opportunity to say that he thinks there's so many problems with the way the death penalty is carried out that it just, uh, the, the whole process is uh, uh, not fair. Right. Uh, and so, of course, I don't think there's any way around it. The big blockbuster case will be the abortion case with the state of Mississippi's a ban on any abortion after 15 weeks. Um, here we go again, Pete. But it's been some time, right, since the justices have taken this issue on directly. And what do you, what do you see happening here? Well, it's the first time the justices have taken on the issue of explicitly overturning Roe v. Wade. Clearly, over the years, the the justices have upheld a number of restrictions on abortion. Right. But this is going to be the abortion term, without question, because there are actually three cases that raise the abortion issue. The Texas case on SB 8 is undoubtedly heading back to the Supreme Court after initially it uh, declined to stop the law, uh, the state from enforcing the law. 
It's now going back through the lower courts again uh, on the federal challenge to the law, which will undoubtedly come to the Supreme Court before this term is over. And there's a uh, sort of a footnote case that's being argued on Tuesday brought by Kentucky's attorney general who wants to intervene after the state of Kentucky declined to defend a law that's now on hold there that would ban the most common form of surgical abortion during the second trimester. The question is a rather dry one. When can state officials intervene in lower court proceedings? Uh, But because the issue is abortion, it's sort of probably a proxy fight over it. Mm -hmm. But without question, Mississippi is the big one. Uh, This is a state law that was passed uh, that, as you said, would ban abortion after just 15 weeks. The lower court said, well, that's clearly a violation of the Supreme Court's precedent. And so the law was put on hold. The state's argument is that Roe v. Wade has no basis in the Constitution, that there is no 14th Amendment right of privacy. The Supreme Court was wrong about that. And secondly, they say, The science has changed. The Supreme Court's logic in Roe and some follow-on cases was that states cannot ban abortion before the age of viability, which is thought to be between 22 and 24 weeks into the pregnancy. So by, by banning it after 15 weeks, clearly Mississippi is taking a direct attack on that. Mississippi's argument is, well, we know much more about uh, fetal development now than we did when Roe was initially decided all those years ago, almost 50 years ago. And so therefore, uh, states should be allowed to uh, basically move the goalpost and, and ban abortion after a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. When, the, when, when Mississippi originally went to the Supreme Court last year, it said, don't worry, you don't have to decide the future of Roe v. Wade. Uh, you can decide this case without doing that. And then after the court agreed to hear the case, <laughs> Mississippi drank some Red Bull and basically said, okay, now it's time to overturn Roe v. Wade. So that's why this is such a big deal. And they also argue, don't they, that um, you don't need Roe v. Wade anymore. It's like the people argued about the Voting Rights Act, right? Everything has changed, so you don't need it anymore. It might have worked 50 years ago, but we know so much more about birth control now. You know, women don't have to have abortions. They've got other means of avoiding an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, uh, yes, they basically say Roe v. Wade is outdated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, we now have a 6-3 court with three Trump appointees, including Amy Coney Barrett, who has been very outspoken as an opponent of abortion. Uh, what does that tell us? What can we expect? Do you expect the court to overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, uh, you know, I think, I think you have to say that Roe is on the chopping block for sure. Whether the court will go that far, I don't know. Um, I think clearly a chief justice John Roberts, his sympathies may be with the state of Mississippi, but he has, throughout his tenure as the chief, hated to see the court take giant steps. He likes it to be incremental. And so I suppose he would like to find some way to uphold the Mississippi law without overturning Roe. I'm not quite sure how that, how you do that, but, uh, you know, to, without getting into the whole history of Roe and whether it was right or wrongly decided, I suspect he'd like to, to keep that off the Supreme Court decision. Uh, he's no longer holding the deciding vote anymore, of course, because even if he votes with the liberals, it's still five conservatives to four uh, with Roberts, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, Stephen Breyer, and Alina Kagan. So I think Brett Kavanaugh may have a lot to say about this as well. And who knows where Neil Gorsuch will be? He's somewhat unpredictable on these uh, questions, but he may 
he may say as an originalist matter that he agrees with Mississippi that there's nothing in the Constitution uh, that that there's no constitutional right to privacy and therefore Roe was wrongly decided. We know there's at least three, well, two justices, certainly Thomas and Alito, uh, believe Roe should be overturned and have said so in the past. So what about this uh, doctrine of... Um Starry decisis. Exactly. Starry decisis. <laughs> right. Which basically says, I mean, in its starkest terms, what starry decisis says is that past decisions should not be disturbed unless there are new developments in the law or new facts that undercut the original logic uh, because people come to depend on rulings and it's not good for the system to have the court change its mind simply because there's a change in membership on the court, that the law should have some consistency. Now, this is one of the government's, the federal government's main arguments here in supporting Roe v. Wade and in opposing Mississippi. They basically say, look, Roe is, you know, like it or not, Roe is part of the fabric of American life. Uh, one in four women in America will have an abortion. That's, mm-hmm. that's how common abortion is. And if you overturn Roe v. Wade, you leave it up to the states, and but about half the states will probably ban abortion. And, uh, you know, there are some past examples here of justices holding their nose and voting a certain way because of stare decisis. One of the most notable examples was the former Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who thought that the whole Miranda warning, you have a right to remain silent mm-hmm. routine, was uh, making it harder for police to do their jobs, and that Miranda had no foundation in the Constitution. But nonetheless, he voted uh, against a challenge to Miranda, basically saying, "Look, I, I think we, I, I think this is not constitutional, but uh, for stare decisis reasons, uh, I'm going to vote to uphold Miranda." There seems to be uh, so that that could be one factor uh, uh, influencing um, the Chief Justice, correct? But also, well, it's a big it's a big issue in the case. Starry decisis yeah. is huge, mm-hmm. and you only have to look at every Supreme Court confirmation hearing because they always right. ask the nominees, well, sure. "What about Starry decisis and Roe?" Uh, the other question uh, that has been talked about with with John Roberts is he doesn't want the court to appear too political, right? And so, if suddenly there are three new justices on the Supreme Court, that suddenly the court would change course, right? Three new justices appointed by a Republican Republican, president, Uh, who explicitly said, I'm going to put justices on the Supreme Court who will overturn Roe. This was Trump, of course. So is that political, uh, uh, the fear of maybe appearing too political, a real factor? uh, Well, certainly for him. And I Mm -hmm. think the other justices, it's on their minds because you've had this extraordinary thing over the summer of four of the court members of the court, starting with Stephen Breyer, uh, and then uh, other justices, including Alito and uh, and Barrett, going out and publicly saying we're not political hacks. Uh, Sotomayor, I guess, with <laughs> right. the other, we make these decisions. Yes, we disagree, but we disagree because we have differing judicial philosophies, not for political reasons. So, uh, you know, the court is well aware that it's going to get hammered if it if it, it makes a decision that appears to be political. So they were all out there trying to, I guess, foam the runway. Uh, and this this session of the court, uh, it, it terminates or completes its course, what, next June? Is that right? When it, 
normally traditionally the end of June. Yes, it, it, of- it, it was it slopped over into July, the first year of COVID. But I think they'll try to get it done by the end of June. Yes, so okay. I don't think we're going to see a decision in the abortion case and maybe even the gun case until probably the last day of the term. All right. So you've mentioned overriding this sort of cloud hanging over the court is also the question of Stephen Breyer. You've mentioned his name a few times, Pete Williams. Uh, He's 82. Is this his last term? Yeah, he'll actually be 84 next August. So uh, I, you know, my guess is it probably is. He was under enormous pressure to step down uh, last term and he didn't. I think that the, the pressure campaign was counterproductive. Um, and I also think, you know, he just got a book out saying we're not political hacks. And then if he were to step down by all these partisans calling him to let a Democratic president appoint his successor, that would seem to undercut his argument. But I think I, I, I suspect that this term will take a huge toll on him. I don't think I think he's going to be writing, my guess is, a ride, a li- writing a lot of dissents. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I just think he may be sort of weary at the end of the term. So, so I think he probably will make the calculation that he should step down while the Democrats still hold the cards and have the White House and presumably the Senate. He has given indications that the whoever w- would replace him is a is one of the one of his considerations, I guess. Right. Well, he's tried to not. He's tried to basically say, "Look, I'll step down." when I think the time is right for me, because, uh, because I've done all I can. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've done my, I've done my service to the country and to the court. And now it's time for me to move on. He's never quite said, I want to step down so that Joe Biden and the democratic president can, uh, appoint my successor. Right. Uh, Pete Williams, great look at what we can expect from the Supreme Court this week. Before we let you go, uh, I want to see if I can get your comment on a couple of things that are in the news lately, just not from a political point of view, but from a legal point of view. Uh, Number one, can Donald Trump, former president, uh, claim, still claim executive privilege? The president says he intends to do so uh, in terms of the Oversight Committee on January 6th, now uh, in the House. Um, presidents still have that authority? Former yes. president? It's pretty clear that a former president can claim it. Uh, the Supreme Court said so, in essence, in a, uh, a 1977 case involving president, former President Nixon and the General Services Administration over his records that the archives have. But if the current occupant of the White House believes that executive privilege should not uh, be allowed or recognized, that severely undercuts it. The courts have never exactly said, how do you referee these disputes between a current and former president who disagree about executive privilege? So they, they don't give the current president all the cards, but they give him a lot of them. So the fact that Biden opposes asserting executive privilege here weakens Trump's claim. And uh, jointly, I guess, the president has uh, advised his former aides to defy subpoenas from the House of Representatives. Uh, do they have the legal right to do so? Well, uh, he, he certainly has the legal right to tell them to do whatever he right. wants. The question right. is this. If they stiff the committee, that's, that's uh, if my, anybody really says no, yeah. and, then they, and then the full House votes to find them in contempt of the House, then that's referred to the local U.S. attorney here in Washington who would be urged to file a criminal prosecution. Um, 
that almost never happens. Uh, usually, of course, these disputes arise over current people in the administration and Congress, and the courts usually say, look, this is a political fight. You guys work it out. When it's former officials, it's a little bit different. But I think I think the only time that I can remember where the courts actually went ahead with this was Rita Lavelle during the Reagan administration, the former head of the EPA. Uh, that just tells you how seldom this happens. You know, mm-hmm. the fact is, Congress doesn't have a lot. Ever since they got rid of the jail in the Capitol 100 years ago, <laughs> Congress doesn't have a lot of power when someone stiffs them. Now, if I were a lawyer advising some of these people, I would say, you know, you better be careful because we seem to have a current consensus here that it's important for you to testify before this committee. There's some real jeopardy here. Uh, but uh, you know, what are the odds that they would actually be prosecuted? I, I just can't say. It's it's not impossible. It does seem somewhat long odds. Uh, I must say the uh, the thought of Steve Bannon and the jail in the basement of the Capitol does so, so <laughs> bring a smile to my face. <laughs> uh, so finally, Pete, I am, and I promise it's the last one. There have been, according to I saw USA Today, some six hundred people who have been now charged with uh, by the FBI with a. Uh, with trespassing or other crimes related to the January 6th uh, insurrection. Uh, there is no, uh, it seems to be no investigation of the p- former president, Donald Trump himself. On, uh, have you uh, heard anything about the Justice Department may pursue criminal justice through a special prosecutor or whatever against Trump? Is Merrick Garland considering this or have no, they dismissed No, I don't it? think that's going to happen. 633 federal cases so far, 96 guilty pleas, 13 people sentenced so far. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 of course, there are, what, three or four civil lawsuits against um, uh, Mr. Trump and Rudy Giuliani and some of these groups that were involved claiming that they basically uh, led the, laid the foundation and egged people on for the Capitol riots. Those lawsuits are continuing here in federal court in Washington. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine there'll be a, a, a criminal prosecution, no. Pete Williams, NBC News. I think you've got the best beat in the business with the Department of Justice and the Supreme Court. I agree. Nobody does it better than you. Well, thank you. Talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bill. My pleasure. And that's it for today's podcast. Big, big turn. Lots of important issues coming up on the Supreme Court this year. Pete Williams on top of it and bringing us up to date on what we can expect in this podcast. We'll be back next with this week's roundtable on Friday with three top political reporters looking back at the big news of this week. Join us then. In the meantime, take care of yourself, stay strong, stay safe, and we'll see you Friday on the next edition of the Bill Press Podcast.